Well, I'm excited this morning to continue asking the question, what is the church? I hope you've been blessed by our series thus far. Maybe your notions challenged. I hope you've been encouraged about the way that God is working through his church. And I do not uh, have the gift of brevity, so I would like for us to just jump right in this morning. And so we're going to do that. We're going to be looking at a few passages this morning, but I want to start by reading from 2 Corinthians. We're going to begin in chapter 6, verse 14, and read through chapter 7, verse 1. You can see on the screen there in your pew Bible, page 966. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Belial? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst, and be separate from them, says the Lord. And touch no unclean thing, then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Let's begin our time this morning praying to our Father. God, you are so good to us. We have tasted of that already this morning. Thank you for the ways that you have cared for and nourished this body of believers here over the years. Lord, it is humbling to think of what the church is and that you would use sinful, broken creatures to accomplish your purposes in the world. Lord, I pray that you would speak through your word, speak through the story of scripture this morning. Touch each of our hearts. May we leave here ever praising the name of the Lord our God and walking in all of your ways. And it's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen. We are going to answer the question, what is the church this morning, by saying the church is the temple of God. It would be good to make sure that we all understand what exactly a temple is and how, whatever a temple is, how it has played a role in the life of God's people. And so here's a definition I'd like us to work with this morning. The temple is where God dwells with his people to bring reconciliation and restoration. Hopefully that's on the screen. There we go. Good. Now I want you to notice two things about this definition. First is this definition doesn't restrict or specify a place. The temple is not necessarily a building. And second, this definition gives a purpose to the temple, an aim, an intended result to the place where God dwells. 
Nick did a wonderful job for us last week in resurrecting the dead metaphor of flock. And while the idea of a temple, I wouldn't say, is dead today, I do believe that a similar approach this morning will be helpful, namely for us to walk through the pages of Scripture from Genesis through Revelation. We're not going to look at every book. But the scope of Scripture to ensure that we understand what is the theme of temple running throughout its pages. And as we do that, asking three questions along the way, my prayer is that this will result in worship of God, an elevated view of our responsibility as the church, and also a clarified vision and a heightened longing for the end time picture of the forever temple. Those three questions we're going to ask are what is the temple? How is the church the temple? And so what? Which is always a helpful question. When you think of God dwelling with man, what is the first instance that comes to your mind? It's the very opening pages of Scripture. At the climax of creation, God creates his image bearers and he tasks them with spreading his presence across the whole earth by being fruitful and multiplying. He gives them rule and dominion. They are to be kings and queens as they rule and care for the earth. While Adam and Eve were placed in a specific single location, their charge was to spread God's image bearers across the planet, resulting in the whole earth being filled with his glory. Yet sadly, Adam and Eve doubted God's goodness. They doubted his word. They failed to trust him. And instead of ruling the earth as his representatives, his image bearers, their sinful hearts longed to rule as their own kings and queens, their own sovereigns, they themselves being the ones to determine right and wrong, good and evil. And in this act of rebellion, Adam and Eve severed the perfect relationship they had with the triune God. And we get a glimpse of what was lost in Genesis 3 as it records what happens after the event. God is walking in the garden looking for Adam and Eve. And yet, are Adam and Eve walking with him like they very likely did the day before? They're hiding from his presence. They have separated themselves from the friend with whom they've shared intimate communion. And now they feel shame and guilt. So the very ones tasked with obeying God's word and growing his presence in the earth have already failed. And as a result, they are sent away from the sanctuary garden of Eden. We fast forward a bit actually a lot. And we find that God has chosen a specific family and he's blessed them, saying that they will be a fruitful people. They will fill the earth and be a blessing to the nations. And he will be their God. Does this sound familiar? And these people, after they were rescued out of 400 years of slavery, they find themselves wandering in a wilderness en route to a rich, fruitful land that's been promised to them. 
shortly after their departure, God comes down to meet with their representative. And he shares how this nation can live in relationship with him. He shares how they are to be set apart, different from the surrounding nations. And even more than giving them his word, he also tells them that he will be with them, dwelling in their midst. And he gives careful attention to describe a lot of details of what exactly this dwelling place must look like. The outer courts, the inner courts, the holy of holies, the most exclusive place where God himself will dwell. What all of these things must entail. And this tabernacle, this will provide a way for God to dwell with his people. This will be a place to atone for their sin. And it will give them assurance that he is with them as they go out bringing his laws and his ways to the nations around them. Skip ahead again, and God's people have failed to trust the one who dwelt among them. And they wander for 40 years in the wilderness before they finally arrive in the land of promise. They have not fully obeyed the Lord. The worship of false gods has plagued this nation, resulting in constant fighting with their neighbors. And in an act of rebellion, these people reject God and they want to establish a king for themselves. Does this sound familiar? And they do this so that they may be like the nations around them. Instead of bringing the love of God and his ways to the world, the ways of the world overtake them. And yet God in his mercy He chooses a king who will follow him with his whole heart and who will help steer the people back to their maker. And as this king, King David, he's contemplating his own living situation, a beautiful house of cedar. He considers it in comparison to the dwelling place of God in the tabernacle, a tent. And he sets out to build a permanent, beautiful place for God to dwell a temple. And God, again in his mercy, he astounds David by telling him that his son will build a house for God. And moreover, God will also establish an eternal rule and reign through his son. Not just as a son of David, but like a son of God himself. As Solomon, David's son, finishes constructing the temple, he rightly calls out the absurdity of the fact that the very God who spoke the galaxies into existence is choosing to dwell in a house of stone made by man. And after dedicating the temple to the Lord and asking for his blessing, God responds to Solomon, stating his intention to bless this house, to set it apart, to keep his name there forever. And yet God also warns Solomon, should the king and the people turn from God and worship and serve other gods? He says, this house will become a heap of ruins and the Lord will bring disaster on them. 1 Kings chapter 9. So while the structure was where God chose to dwell, it wasn't the structure that would keep him there. It was the hearts of his people. 
walking with and serving their king as his representatives on the earth. And sadly, the ruins spoken of came to be. These people were unfaithful to God, rejecting the one who had delivered them. The prophet Jeremiah gives us a picture of what life had become for these people. Their trust, their trust had become in the building, in the structure. While their ways and lifestyle had simultaneously ignored the word of God that dwelt in the temple. Listen to what Jeremiah says. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, amend your ways and your deeds and I will let you dwell in this place. Do not trust in these deceptive words. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. Skipping a few verses, he says, Behold, you trust in deceptive words to no avail. Will you steal, murder, commit adultery, swear falsely, make offerings to Baal, and go after other gods that you have not known, and then come and stand before me in this house, which is called by my name, and say, We are delivered, only to go on doing all these abominations? Has this house which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people Israel. And now, because you have done all these things, declares the Lord, and when I spoke to you persistently, you did not listen, and when I called you, you did not answer, Therefore, I will do to the house that is called by my name and in which you trust and to the place that I gave to you and to your fathers as I did to Shiloh. And I will cast you out of my sight as I cast out all your kinsmen, all the offspring of Ephraim. Ultimately, to spoil the ending, these people are sent off into exile and God's glory departs from the temple. So when the opening pages of John's gospel tell us that the word of God tabernacled amongst his people, you'd be forgiven if you thought this was a flashback. Yet it's not. The word of God, John tells us, was not rewritten on tablets, but became flesh, became a man, Jesus Christ. The word made flesh, dwelt among, tabernacled among us. And this man, John tells us, is not only man, though he is fully man, but he is also fully God, Emmanuel. God with us. And the glory that departed from the temple, signaling God's departure from his people, John writes, For we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses, Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, 
the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. What tent and cloth, pillar and stone, altar and incense, slaughter and sacrifice, cleansing and purification, what all of these things had pictured had finally arrived. And it was Jesus' ministry and life on earth and what he came to do that show us God's ultimate plan for dwelling with his people. His ultimate plan for bringing reconciliation and restoration. It was never about a building, a location. Jesus told an outsider when asked about the true location of worship, he said that the day had arrived when true worshipers of God won't need to pick the right mountain or find the right coordinates. Instead, the true worshipers of God are those who worship him in spirit and truth. And later, in addressing the spiritual leaders of the day, who found their identity in the physical, external advantages they perceived, he enraged them when he said that something greater than the temple is here. And another time, after condemning the temple practices of the day, he said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Which John tells us he was speaking about the temple of his body. The place of worshiping God and the means for access to God are ultimately found in the Son of God, who, as the sacrificial lamb, paid the penalty for the sins of those who would trust and receive his sacrifice, thereby tearing down the curtain of the temple that separated an unclean people from a holy God. And Jesus now serves as our great high priest, daily interceding on behalf of his people before the throne room of heaven. After defeating death and breaking the curse of the first garden, Christ ascended to heaven, leaving his disciples here on earth. Before leaving, he told his disciples that another helper was coming to be with them forever. This helper was the Spirit of God, the third person of the Trinity. And this helper would dwell with them. He would be in them. He would teach them all things and bring to remembrance all of Christ's words. And lest the disciples be sorrowful about his pending departure, Jesus told them that it was to their advantage that he go. For if he did not go away, the helper would not come. And his final charge was to go out into the world and make more disciples, more men and women, boys and girls, who will be God's representatives, his image bearers in a dark, sin-stained world. They were to do this by teaching God's word, instructing them in all Christ had commanded. And this charge he gave to them was accompanied by two realities. The first, it was Christ's rule and reign that was the basis for this charge. And second, that he would be with them until the end. And as the young church grew, 
Look at what we find in the book of Acts and the parallels we see to Genesis 1. Chapter 6, And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Chapter 12, So the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Chapter 19, It is the word of God that goes out, bears fruit, and multiplies the number of those who bear his name, image, and likeness. The real NIL. And some 2,000 years later, we find ourselves in the era of the church. We are continuing God's mission that started in a garden in Genesis. And so as we find ourselves in the age where Christ continues to build his church, we must ask ourselves, how is the church the temple? Revisiting our definition, I believe we can say that the church, the people of God, the body of Christ, the household of God, his flock, we are where God dwells to bring reconciliation and restoration. How does that happen? Well, let's jump back to the Second Corinthians passage we began with. The context here, Paul is addressing sin within the Corinthian church, and he calls out the folly, the foolishness of mingling pagan idolatry with the temple. It'd be just as silly as it would be to mingle light and darkness, righteousness and lawlessness. It shouldn't happen. And of the promises that Paul quotes, notice where he starts. A relationship. He actually quotes from several places, Leviticus, Exodus, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel. But he quotes God's promise to be in relationship with his people as their God. To dwell and walk among them. And it is on this basis that Paul says to the church, we are the temple of the living God. We are where he dwells. Elsewhere, when Paul says, you are God's temple, it's a plural you. Y'all are God's temple. And of course, God's spirit dwells in the redeemed individually. But we must also shed our individualistic notions and our framework and understand that God's spirit dwells amongst the locally gathered body of Christ, the church, amongst us, here in this room. The church is where God's spirit dwells and walks and we aren't the temple of God because of our architectural superiority or any form of external attractiveness we might offer. We aren't the temple of God because of any moral superiority we can claim. We are the temple of God because of his promise of grace, his pursuit of us, his choosing to dwell amongst his people and bring them into a saving relationship through faith in Jesus Christ and the gift of his spirit. And yet, there is a responsibility to respond. So we are also the church because we are a sanctified, separate, and cleansed people. 
Look at what Paul says next. And here he's referencing Isaiah chapter 52. Be separate from the world. Be clean. Be strange if you must. Be weird if that's what it's being called. Go out from their midst. Separate yourselves. And of course, this isn't in an exclusive way where we build walls around us, but it's in a way of don't look like unbelievers in how you live and conduct your life kind of way. The call to the church, to the temple of the Lord, is to cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Continuing on this theme, if you want to flip over or it's on the screen, but 1 Peter chapter 2, the very passage we began this series with, and I'm not going to read all 11 verses. But Peter has just declared who the people of God are. They are a spiritual house, a holy priesthood, a royal priesthood. And Peter urges his readers to do what? To live differently. To abstain from the passions of the flesh. To fight sin. To keep their conduct among the Gentiles. And we should hear that as those outside the church at present. To keep conduct honorable. Why? Sin is waging war against your souls. We can look back through the pages of Scripture and see what happened when sin entered the camp. And even as cleansed, purified saints... When sin is in our midst, we lose out on the sweet, refreshing, life-giving communion that flows from a heart that's right with God. Sin puts a kink in that line. Sin wages war against us. We also lose credibility to those watching. Notice that Gentiles will speak against the church as evildoers. Persecution will come. But there will be a day when they may see the good deeds of faith and will give God the glory. We don't win over the watching world by becoming like them, by blending in. We as the church, the sanctified, separate, and cleansed house of God, we win over the world by the way that we live. The church also fulfills its role as a temple by heralding the word of God. Knowing, trusting, and obeying God's word has always been central to bearing his image and advancing his mission. We already saw how Acts described the growing early church using the same instructions given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, 28. Fruitfulness and multiplication. We could list many things that went wrong on that fateful day in the garden, but near the top of the list would be Eve succumbing to Satan's twisting and manipulating of God's word. So much so that she herself misquotes it, and she doubts its goodness in her life. Choosing to reject the word of God, Adam and Eve take matters into their own hands, and they decide for themselves what is right and good. And as God graciously gave his law to the people throughout the Old Testament, it was stored at the center of the tabernacle and later the temple. 
And it was those who ministered there that communicated the word of God to the people. And it was where the people gathered to hear the word of God. And as Peter writes, he tells the living stones, the holy priests, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. And here, spiritual milk is a metaphor for the word of God. Just as an infant needs nutrient-rich milk to grow and develop and mature, so we need God's word to grow up into salvation. Just like an infant without milk will starve, so a Christian will suffer without the word of God. And later on in this passage, you see, in speaking of those who stumble over the rock of offense, Jesus, Peter writes that they stumble. Why? Because they disobey the word. Faithfully heralding the word of God is part of what it means to be his temple. And we also see here that as God's temple, each member of the church serves as a priest offering sacrifices. Peter says, as you come to Jesus, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Isaiah foretold a day when foreigners, hear this, foreigners would be joined to the Lord to minister to him, to love him, and to be his servants. And God would bring these foreigners into his house of prayer where their burnt offerings and sacrifices would be accepted on his altar. It's Isaiah chapter 56. We should hear the church in that language. And we just studied Romans, so we're familiar with what sacrifices this is ultimately talking about. Spiritual sacrifices, as Peter says here. Our bodies. Just as priests serving in the old covenant, they knew what type of sacrifices were acceptable to God. They also knew the ramifications for offering unacceptable sacrifices. So we as priests, we now offer our very bodies, our lives, our wills, our desires, all of us as living sacrifices to God. And this, Paul writes in Romans 12, this is our spiritual worship. Just as Christ gave his body for his bride, the church, so now we as members of his body we fulfill our priestly duty by offering our bodies as living sacrifices to God. Do you hear the high calling? It's striking that we are described in Scripture with a very lowly metaphor of a flock of sheep. And yet at the same time, we are the very place where God dwells. Except this is no metaphor. This is truly what we are. In church, we could spend the day exploring what it means for us to be the temple of God, but uh, we must aim towards a conclusion. So what? Do we sit back and put another feather in our cap of theological knowledge? That's probably a dead metaphor. Does anybody put feathers in their caps anymore? I don't think so. Or does this matter day in and day out? 
Well, I pray it's the latter. And to that end, I have one takeaway for us with six sub takeaways. <laughs> Remember and be who you are. You all remember the iconic scene in The Lion King. Simba, the heir to the throne of the Pride Lands. He's been living away in exile, believing the lie that he's responsible for the death of his father. And as the Pride Lands waste away under the rule of his evil uncle Scar, Simba runs into his old cubmate Nala. She urges him to return and sit on his rightful throne. Simba feels grossly unequipped. He lacks confidence, but he hears a voice from the skies calling down to him. Remember who you are. You are my son and the one true king. Remember who you are. Now, I hope you all heard James Earl Jones' voice as I read that. I debated doing a very low uh, voice, and I thought that's not going to do him justice. But what does Simba do? This reminder of who he is springs him into action and he returns to resume his rightful throne. So as the temple of God, we need to remember and respond accordingly to who we are. Well, what does that look like? The first is we are reconciled to God and one another. Two weeks ago, Lance walked us through Ephesians 2 and so I'm not going to read through it all again. And it's been sweet to see how many passages overlap here. Um, I've gotten great justification for mixing metaphors in my own life because Scripture does it all the time, as we've seen. Um, so here it further builds out what it means to be the temple. Paul writes that we were separated from Christ. We were alienated and strangers to his promises. We were without hope in God. But we are now brought near through the sacrificial blood of Christ, reconciled to God in one body. There is no place for hostility within the church. It was killed, it was destroyed on the day that Christ hung on the cross. So look to your left, look to your right, look at your family, look at your spouse. Brooks, thank you for looking. Nobody was looking, but Brooks was, so thank you. <laughs> you can look at any one person in the room and know that whatever grounds you might think you have for division, for hostility, for bitterness, for angst, for envy, for jealousy, for strife, none of those reasons hold up in the temple, the dwelling place of God. The dividing wall of hostility has been torn down. Be reconciled to God and to one another. We are also built and joined together. Notice how Paul describes this coming together. He says, You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. 
In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Book I read, here's a quote. It said, In the ancient world, stones were not joined together with mortar, but were shaved down to fit perfectly together. Just as each stone was chipped away and refined to fit into something far more glorious, so God shapes and forms each believer, sometimes painfully, to be joined together into something far more glorious, the dwelling place of God. In the early church, this process of shaving down differences to fit together as a dwelling place for God was particularly painful. And we just recently walked through Romans 14, so we've talked about what that looks like. So does it ever feel uncomfortable? Maybe even painful? Is community hard? Does it disappoint you? Is it easier to stay home by yourself or not engage? The answer is probably often yes. But friends, we are not a group of individual pillars spread out across a field. Rather, by God's grace and mercy, we are being joined together. And I love the image of being joined together into something far more glorious than any one of us could hope to be on our own. So we are reconciled, we are joined together. We are also to be separate and holy. We must heed the call to holiness, to right living, often against the flow of our culture. We must be a transformed people, not conformed to the patterns of our age. Both Peter and Paul, as we've seen, they had a therefore following their citation of us being God's temple. We are to flee sinful passions. We are to cleanse ourselves, pursue holiness. So as the place where God dwells is sin in our midst. Do we look any different from the world around us? Are we living according to the grace given us by crucifying our flesh and its desires and walking by the strength of God's spirit? Further, are we helping each other towards that end? Are we finding regular patterns of confession, accountability, encouragement, and even rebuke. We must also long for the word. One way that we strive towards holiness is by rightly handling to and submitting to God's word. If we are to be fruitful and multiply, God's word must be at the center of our thoughts and our actions. Just as the temple held God's word, and was where his people would come to receive the Lord's instruction. So our gatherings here and our lives throughout the week must feast on the word of God. Do we long for it, as Peter instructs? Is it our meditation day and night? Is it our very life? We are also to offer spiritual sacrifices in response to his cleansing and his word, do our lives respond in selfless giving? Or are we prone to worshiping the countless idols of our hearts? Self, 
comfort, rights, pleasure, authority. Do we wake up every morning with our eyes on our great high priest who gave himself for us? And do we respond with hearts of gratitude, gladly laying down our lives for others? Some of you may have noticed that I didn't finish tracing the theme of temple all the way through the end. For just as the opening pages describe God's dwelling with man, so the final pages depict the same. Also in a garden-like creation. Except in this new creation, there will be no temple at all. Listen to how John describes it in Revelation 21. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, or pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And a few verses later, and I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God the Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day and there will be no night there. Our story will end with God's presence fully, finally, and foreverly with his people in the new creation. God will be with his people and his glory will fill the earth. Just like in the Garden of Eden, he will walk with his people Yet this time, it will not be an innocent people, but a redeemed people. And as we look forward to that day, let's remember that we, as the reconciled, joined together, separate and holy, word of God saturated, self-sacrificing people we are, we do all of this that we may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. We can be guilty of making good things the ultimate things. Just like we can idolize our children or our family, we can also idolize our local church body. We can fall into the trap of thinking that this is it the sweet fellowships and the friendships that I have here, the way that we teach, the way that we sing, the way that we do this or that, the way that we tailgate, this is it. Except it's not. Friends, these are all good things and these are all God-given things, but these are just shadows of the things to come. For a day is coming when these sweet expressions of God's goodness will not be confined to the roads of Galusha or other places. But rather, his glory 
will fill the earth. And so we don't live into these realities so that somehow the name of Grace Church of DuPage will ring throughout history so that it will mean something in the end. And in fact, I'm not even sure if our name will appear in the footnotes of history. Instead, we live into these realities to proclaim his excellencies. And we proclaim these to a watching world until the day when all of creation shouts his praises forever and ever. The day when we see the bridegroom coming to bring his bride home, when we will truly and finally be with God in his presence forevermore, the temple realized. So Grace Church, we as a local body of Christ are his temple where God dwells with his people to bring reconciliation and restoration. Let's live in that reality. As I pray, I'll invite those serving communion and our musicians forward. Father, help us respond to what we've heard this morning. I stand amazed at your plan of salvation throughout history, how you are a God who has always longed to dwell with his people, to pursue sinful people. We thank you, Father. May we live in the reality of who we are, who you have made us to be in Christ. May we be a fruitful and multiplying church for your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.